It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Here we are, podcast number 73. That's right. That's one year after you were born. That's one year I was uh, after I was born. Uh, you can catch up on anything you've missed. You can register at iTunes so you never miss a podcast from Dr. Stuart Fishbein. We're up to 73. Uh, Dr. Stu's got an email address, askdrstu at gmail.com. You can send him a question, no matter how personal. He answers all of the email, and some of the email, to protect your identity, by the way, is used in uh, conversation on Dr. Stu's podcast. And it's a great show. Subscribe, 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 so that you don't miss a second of Dr. Stu's podcast. And when you're on the website, drstuespodcast.com, you'll see on the right and the left, you'll see all sorts of blogs and articles and information. There's a lot of really good stuff if you're a mom, if you expect to be a mom, if you're a dude, if you're a willing chick in a relationship with another lady. Yeah, and you can you can uh, click on Dr. Stu's podcast facebook page and you can like that and you can uh share some of the links from there we also have uh fearless pregnancy facebook page that's the book that i wrote with a couple uh, midwife and another colleague of mine uh and it's really kind of good for first-time moms it, it takes a look at uh, uh pregnancy in a way where it's not fear it's not fear-based that's why it's obviously called fearless pregnancy i'm going into my fourth year hosting morning drive on krla radio here in los angeles and uh you're a listener I am a listener. And uh, back before... I've been in studio with you a couple times, yeah, just well, sitting, sitting watching you guys. Yeah, that's right. Back before that, I was on KLSX, the FM talk station. I was with Rick Dees at KISS FM, and I was also at uh, KABC in Los Angeles. Dr. Stu was a guest on KABC. Oh, wow, that's right. That's going back a decade, right? Well, it was probably about 2000, yeah, exactly a decade. Exactly it's a decade. 2015, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. That's right. It was about 2005. The book came out in 2004, and you had a, you were gracious enough at KABC, I believe. It was right off of uh, um, La, Ma- Bre- La Brea, I think. Uh, La Cienega. La Cienega, right down, right. right down by the freeway down there. And you were a great guest. The book is called Fearless Pregnancy. The book is available on your website. And the book Fearless Pregnancy, by the way, uh, worth noting, we haven't done a plug for it and probably, what, we're up to 73, probably haven't done a plug. About 73 podcasts. Probably haven't done a plug in at least 72 (laughs) podcasts. Fearless Pregnancy, uh, uh, give us the nuts and bolts. What is that book about? I know you wrote it uh, with a co-author, but it's for mom. Is it for the first-time mom? I get that It's best for the first-time mom. The the subtitle of the book is uh, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, a Midwife, and a Mom. So we we have segments of the book that were written by me, segments written by uh, my midwife colleague Joyce, and segments written by the mom, Victoria. And uh, a lot of the, uh, basically what it does is it looks at things that uh, happen in pregnancy or tests that need to come up in pregnancy and presents them in a style that is not fear-based. Uh, a lot of the book's number one book out there that sells for pregnant women is uh, what to expect while you're expecting tends to be a very uh, fear inducing or anxiety inducing book because everything might be this but it could be this so consult your physician and yeah because pregnant women aren't anxious enough not enough right (laughs) right Right. randy you are right i know uh and that's too bad because you know what pregnancy and labor do in mammals 
doesn't do well when you have fear and anxiety uh, uh, permeating the environment. And we've talked about this. Serious, yes, que- serious question. I have known in my life a lot of women who have been pregnant, who have given birth. And uh, I know the fears that they have, fears that they have that come from within, independent of anyone else. I know fears that uh, first-time moms have that are within them based on conversations they'll have with girlfriends or family members. I know the fears that reside within them as a result of conversations with moms or mothers-in-law. Let's take fearless pregnancy, and, and, and let me ask you, as a doctor to focus on, uh, I'm going to go for three, three fears that are present in first time pregnant moms that are there, not because mom or a cousin or a friend or a sister planted them. I want to know what those fears are that are planted by the physician. Doctors do, and I know it's a tough question because doctors don't like to <laughs> criticize doctors. Oh, but that's on, not me, though. But <laughs> on this podcast, you do it, and it makes you a renegade, and it has a reason to do with uh, with the success. I don't, of, I don't, uh, re- I don't, I don't uh, criticize just for the sake of criticizing. I, know, I, I, I legitimately I, criticize no, where criticism is needed. I know you don't. Yeah. So I'm asking you, fearless pregnancy. There's a lot of fear, especially in a first time pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, a, a detail. Uh, delineate some of the fears that are present, in your opinion, solely because of feedback, comments that are made by the medical community, the doctor, the nurses, etc., to the pregnant woman when she finds out she is expecting. Okay, well... We're going to just try to limit it to three because this could be a very long list. If you want to go to 33, <laughs> no. in the words of Ross no, Perot, the, the most common, you say, I'm all ears. The, so most, common, <laughs> the most common one is that you know, a woman is sort of convinced or told that her body is not capable of growing and, and delivering her fetus, that her baby will be too big, her pelvis will be too small, uh, that sort of thing. So there's a, uh, the, the implication of doctors, and I think it's projection on their part that they, that they have a fear of obstetrics, and so they project that onto the woman. I think, it's, I think there's no excuse for that. But give, me a, give me a percentage. A, a medical professional will lay that on a first-time uh, pregnant mom how many times out of 100 well, I can't. I can't speak for you know, Brian. Take, you, take you, ask, you know, I want to be legitimate. No, I can't uh, speak take for. It, take but a guess. Does it happen a little? Does it happen? I think it happens a lot. It happens. I think a lot. Not, I think a second one would be. I that, love getting the answers from guys who don't want to give them up. Yeah, well, you're good at that. I, I think a second one would be that you can't do this without pain medication. That's another one. That labor is really painful, and you know, thank God we have epidurals. I think that that's another one where doctors plant that seed of uh, that labor is difficult. Um, and you don't see any animals asking for epidurals. No, not too much. You don't see animals crying out in labor either. Well, they just kind of go. Nah, if you're out there in the woods, you'll hear them. Screaming. No, actually, you don't hear much. Really? Yeah, a couple reasons. One is obviously a screaming mammal it would attract predators, wouldn't it? So you know, have you ever watched the videos on TV of like a a, a laboring giraffe or a laboring elephant or whatever? They they don't make any noise. They're not going. Rah! They're not you know. And of course, giraffes don't talk anyway. But but did you know that, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, why can't no, there's a giraffe uh, uh, that no, talks. He sells me toys. No, what I didn't, oh, that's right. What I didn't know is <laughs> you still that still shop there too. I what think. I didn't know is that you do such a dead-on giraffe impression. That I learned. But uh, no, uh, seriously and truly, um, out in the mammalian world, which is a phrase you use a lot, you think that um, human beings are, are 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 put on guard more than other mammals during the birthing process than is necessary yeah of course of course you know you know that's my whole thing is that is that pregnancy is not an illness pregnancy is a normal function of the woman's body it functions it's a primitive brain function it doesn't growing a baby and laboring a baby is only interfered with by your higher brain function when you are a woman in a coma if she's otherwise healthy, will grow a baby and deliver a baby. She won't be able to voluntarily push, but the uterus will push the baby out. Dr. Fishbein, you have delivered a baby uh, from a, you have caught a baby from a mom who was in a coma. Is yes, that, is that yes, correct? Yes, one time. One time. Yes. What was that like? Well, it was very tragic because the mother wasn't going to probably survive. So it was just a very tragic event. May I ask if she did survive? No, she did not. She, did. she had HIV. Yeah, and, it was and, a really interesting thing. It was when I was a resident. And, uh, wow, uh, that must have been so emotional. It, it was everybody. Yeah, it was very emotional. And and yeah, I won't even say any more. Okay, that, that's enough of that. Sure. But those are two things. One is that your body's not good enough to do it. Two that you won't be able to uh, deal with uh, pain issues. Uh, another one is that um, anything that is outside of what the doctor recommends is to be laughed at. In other words, you know, doula, you don't need a doula. Uh, midwife. Midwife, herbal, herbal remedies, oh, you don't want to do that. Uh, yeah, having a home birth midwife, you don't want to do that. I mean, those are the kind of, those are probably the three biggest things that I think that physicians plant seeds of doubt or fear that without a hospital, you can't do this, your body won't do this, and you can't do this without pain medicine. Um, the truth is, is none of those things are true, all right, for most women. And again, we've talked infinitely on the show that nothing is always or never yep uh but labor is designed to progress best when a woman is confident and feels safe and secure in her surroundings and is able to move and eat and drink and be left alone when your cortical brain comes into play when you start thinking about things when you have anxiety or fear puts out the wrong hormonal signals to your uterus, uterus stops contracting, and the whole thing starts to get dysfunctional. Here on Dr. Sue's podcast, uh, I'm Brian Whitman, your co-host, our producer. Uh, welcome back, the great Randy Wang. Uh, there's an article here from NPR News, and I want to read a bit of it to you. NPR stands for a Minnesota Public Radio. Okay, so this comes from Minnesota. They're liberals. My home, that's my home state. Okay, in the not all liberals. Okay. Aren't you I'm, so I'm, glad you're out here right there. now? Yeah, right. California's a lot better. No, I'm thinking of the land of Hubert Humphrey. And oh, Walter, you mean as far as the temperature goes? Yeah, oh, yeah. And oh, Walter yeah. Mondale. Health uh, category, health section. Uh, headline, rural hospitals getting out of the birthing business. Bob Collins is the author, and it is uh, only weeks old from 2015. I'll read a bit. It's getting so you can't even give birth in a hospital in some sections of Minnesota anymore. Period. Is that true? Well, it's in the paper. It must be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true in a lot of it's true here in Southern California as well. Some hospitals 
have gotten out of the labor business because they can't either financially make it or they can't meet the supposed uh, criteria set down by the American College of OBGYN, which isn't really a criteria. It's meant to be a guideline, but their risk management department, their administration are fearful that if something bad were to happen, the risk benefit ratio isn't isn't good enough to support the hospital to continue to do obstetrics. So these rural communities where the hospital has been the focal point of, of like the church, it's been the focal point of the of the community are, are having to shut down their obstetrical units. They continue. The Duluth News Tribune reports the Cook County North Hospital in Grand Marais. No, S is silent. Okay. Uh, Grand Marais will close its obstetrics unit, joining Eli Blumenson Community Hospital in announcing the closing of birthing facilities. According to one survey, the number of hospitals offering obstetrics facilities is down 23%, most of them in rural areas. Let me stop right there and hit you with a question. If we've got hospitals right there basically saying they're, they're cutting facilities, they're closing down facilities, isn't that our begging the good people of Minnesota to get serious about the prospect of home birthing because if this trend continues, there's not going to be hospitals to deliver their babies. It's schizophrenic, all right, because everybody wants, say everybody uses safety as the reason why they close these hospitals or why they, you know, can't keep their units open or something like that. But how is it safer to make a woman drive 100 miles when she's in labor, than five miles. Well, on the face of it, it's unsafer. Of course it is. Yeah, because 95 miles But the hospital is not concerned about the safety of the pregnant woman. The hospital is concerned about its financial viability because we live in absurd times where trial lawyers and politicians are not looking out for the individual. They're looking out for their industry or their re-election or whatever it is, because this is insane. And the reason I brought this article to you, Brian, is it hits home for me because my mother was born in Ely, Minnesota. Mm. It's pronounced Ely, by the way. And uh, it's in the north, it's in the Iron Range up uh, near the uh, Boundary Waters Canoe area. And my mother is from there. And I don't know if it's the same hospital or not. It may have changed. My mother, you know, passed away many years ago, but she would have, she would have been about 80, uh, 89 years old this year. And, um, so for me, when I read that and they're closing that hospital, that's where that's the hospital or that's the community where my mother was born. So it hit me, it hit me that that this is insane because what's what's supposed to happen? I mean, women are gonna, women are not going to not live in these areas, and then they also are very restrictive. I don't know about Minnesota's home birth laws. I think Minnesota is actually decent about home birth, but a lot of states the same things happening in states where they're not even allowing midlife, like like Maryland, which is negotiating or not negotiating, but legislating to try to get midwives in their state. But meanwhile, a, a woman can have a birth at home in Maryland, but they can't have anybody who knows what they're doing attend the birth at home. Why? It's against the law. It's a felony. But why would that be against the law? Because somebody's special interest has decided that they know better than the women of Maryland. They think it's not safe to have birth at home. You should have birth in a hospital. But now... There's, the hospitals are starting to close their units because they found out that it's financially not viable for them to keep it open. Something somewhere sooner or later is going to reach critical boiling point where somebody's going to say, we need to rein in the legal system here. We need to, we need to give immunity to these people. We need to let 
women have their community hospitals. This is insane. More from this report out of the Duluth News Tribune in Dr. Stuart Fishbein's native Minnesota. Uh, quote, it's not that women aren't having babies. It's that hospitals can't get insurance because of rules from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, specifically one requiring that emergency cesarean section must be available within 30 minutes. From the Cook County Hospital, the nearest available C-sections are in Duluth, 110 miles away, according to the newspaper. This is a challenge uh, that you have talked about in the past on this podcast, Dr. Stu, but you have also uh, uh, proposed some solutions as well. Brian, 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 you're right. Um, you know, I remember what you say. A, a, a woman having her third or fourth baby cannot drive 110 miles. And remember, this is Duluth, Minnesota, uh, where it might be snowing or icy, and it wouldn't be wise to drive 110 miles. So what are all the women uh, supposed to do? I can tell you a, a bizarre solution that when I was in residency, I spent two months uh, doing uh, 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 an elective with the Alaska Native Health Service right. in a place called Bethel, Alaska, and I found out that all the pregnant Native Americans that were under the auspices of the uh, the Native American Health Service, when they were 36 weeks, they were it was mandated that they be flown to Anchorage, where they lived in dormitories away from their families for the last month, so they could give birth in a facility that that had emergency help immediately available. So the 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 solution was almost a socialistic or communistic solution of, I'm sorry, you can't stay at home. You have to come to this place mm. and live here because we can't service you. And and again. I don't, I mean, I don't understand the priorities of people that do this sort of thing. A woman needs to be with her family when she's giving birth, and her family should be able to experience the joy of giving birth. But the family can't be flying to Anchorage and spending a month there when, they're, when they have work and their lives are in these small villages. Uh, in, in, so what are the people of northern Minnesota yeah. or, mm -hmm. for that matter, rural California or anyplace else supposed to do? when their local hospital closes. This is a, this is a short-term solution yeah. without any long-term thinking. Dr. Sue, I could Google it and find the answer real quick, so why don't you just be honest and tell me how old you are? Oh, me? I'm 58. Okay, you're 58. We've covered that before. Right. Uh, is, do you ever think, do you ever think, as we're years now, we've been doing this podcast, we're moving into three years of doing this podcast. Uh, do you ever think about the days, the 90s, uh, you know, <laughs> when you were in the sort of assembly line, for lack of a better term, mentality of delivering and catching babies? Do you ever think that, uh, hey, I don't know, you know, I'm a young guy. I'm 58. Maybe there's another five, 10 years where I'll revert to the way it was. Or have you learned too much from women, from pregnant women, from couples, from expecting fathers, from from expecting uh, mothers, uh, from expecting partners uh, that uh, moving back to the other for financial reasons or otherwise moving back to the other uh, uh, sort of um, system that you departed several years ago does that ever have any sort of allure to you do you ever well, nostalgia always has an allure Brian. right i think to all of us so I, you so I think you so you think about well, it. part of what i do has sort of is has gone back to the old marcus welby model of home visits and 
and spending much more time with each individual client. Um, I think that the idea that that's ever going to happen again in today's world is absurd. It will never happen. It will not go back. I think what we need in, in for, for normal, healthy, obstetrical uh, uh, women, pregnant women, is uh, a new model, a completely new model, a revised model, a Whole Foods model of uh, for what they, Whole Foods did to grocery shopping and, and groceries. Organic I pregnancy. Well, we do need, we do, we need to take normal birth away from hospitals. We need to uh, call ACOG on the carpet uh, to come to maybe back off a little bit from putting out guidelines that where they again they I don't exactly know their motivation because either they're either they're ideologues of unbelievable like uh, stubbornness or they just don't have a long term vision. Do they put put these things out here and then don't bother to think well once we put this out there then what's going to happen? What are administrators of hospitals going to do? What are the trial lawyers going to do with this piece of paper that we're putting out there? They don't bother to think about that. Because I'll tell you, the other article I gave you that's sitting on your desk over there, Brian, is about the 30-minute rule. And you brought it up because it's in the Minnesota article. It is. I have it here. Dr. Milan Schmidt, the hospital's medical director, told an audience at a meeting that it's just not feasible in Cook County. Here's the quote. Uh, uh, Milan Schmidt is a male. He said, quote, C-section availability within 30 minutes is unimaginable, close quote. Let's take that on as a factual statement. C-section availability within 30 minutes is unimaginable, close quote. Do you concur or disagree with that statement on the face of it? The, the answer to your question, Brian, is sort of is, of, uh, is, is a complex one. Um, the ideal is to be able to do a C-section within 30 minutes. And ACOG's guideline was not meant to be a edict or, a, or an absolute guideline. It was meant to be a recommendation. And the question, the question is interesting because um, people ask, well, where did, the, where did 30 minutes come from? Why not 28 minutes? Why not 32 minutes? Why not 35 minutes? Why not 27 minutes? And the ACOG guideline is stated is not a requirement. It does not mandate that all C-sections commence within 30 minutes from the time of decision to perform one. Rather, the guideline clearly states that the hospital should be capable, capable of performing a procedure within 30 minutes. It doesn't mean that it's always going to happen. And it's it, basically what I'm advocating is that um, a guideline or policy of waiting to perform a cesarean section it would not be wise either, but do it as fast as you can. All right. In other words, 30 minutes, therefore, should be a goal, not a finite time. Mm. They're treating it like the Domino's model. 30 minutes of your pizza is free. Yeah, basically, that's right. <laughs> that's right. There's a, there was, a, there was a, um, uh, a study or an a, a interpretation put out by something called the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development which is a, a maternal fetal medicine uh, organization. Mm -hmm. And the design of that study was obviously observational uh, because no ethical means exist to randomize women to less than or more than 30 minutes. Obviously, you can't say, you have fetal distress, we're going to take you to 35 minutes. You have fetal distress. I have fetal distress? <laughs> I know, I look not it. Yet, not Randy, yet. hypothetically. Right. Hypothetically speaking. So they, they looked at an observational study. But what they found was ra rather interesting. They said, in a university setting where one would expect OB, uh, in-house OB coverage and 24-hour anesthesia to be available, only 65% of the emergency called C-sections commenced within 30 minutes. 
But okay. I would expect you, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, crusader against the unnecessary C-section, crusader for home birth to respond emotionally and uh, w- with great passion to this headline from OBG Management, a publication in their October 2007 article. Here's the headline. There is no gold standard for decision to incision time. That clearly refers to, incision refers to uh, the beginning of a cesarean. The beginning of a cesarean. So let's take it on the face of it. There is no gold standard for decision to incision time. Is that true? I suspect it is. Well, this is what the author of this article is trying to state. The author is saying that the 30 minute rule of ACOG. Is not is not based on science. It's a, it's again. It shouldn't be the gold standard. However, in the in the American legal system, if a baby is born that has a problem, uh, that's got brain damage or even worse, and it took 31 minutes from the decide the time that the doctor said I think we need to do a C-section till the time the incision came, they're going to claim that it was the time that it took that caused the problem, but the data doesn't support that. That's and, and so. Uh, we need to change. I mean, again, this is what happens when maybe well-meaning, maybe misguided, uh, you know, academicians put out these sorts of statements. And so this author is basically the title that you read is trying to say that that I don't care what I don't care what ACOG says. There is no gold standard because it, the gold standard even um, o- only two thirds of an academic institution like a university can even get close to meeting that gold standard, which means that a third of the emergency C-sections for un- a non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing at this at a university institution will still not be out in 30 minutes. So how is any hospital going to do that? And, and then they also said, Brian, that acidosis and, and, and uh, ischemic encephalopathy of babies isn't necessarily improved or disproved by the 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It really, sometimes babies can be born in 20 minutes and they're going to suffer terrible damage. Sometimes it'll be 40 minutes and they'll be okay. So the 30 minutes is, again, one of these artificial, pull it out of the thing guidelines like, like that, that, that seems to it, fit the model. It seems okay. to fit the model but by it, which hospitals want to be able to have something to fall back I'm on. I'm not a doctor. Tell me to shut up if I need to shut up. But how artificial can it be if they're saying there's no gold standard for decision to incision time? Don't, uh, a subheadline, don't accommodate plaintiff's attorneys who have reinvented an intended guideline as a requirement. So if you have a plaintiff coming in representing a mom or a dad or a couple who's saying, look, uh, this, uh, you know, this so-called gold standard for decision to incision time is gospel. Uh, it, it, it is, it is the industry standard, and this is not the timeline that was applied uh, to the birth of our baby here. That's uh, clearly a strategy to win a lawsuit. Correct. The problem, of course, is that in a lawsuit, don't ha- sometimes they deserve to win that lawsuit? Not because of the thirty-minute decision to incision time no there are other reasons why you can win a lawsuit you can say that the tracing on the baby's heart rate looked terrible for two hours before somebody even decided to do something but to say that once you decide to do something that the the damage was caused because you couldn't get that baby out within 30 minutes is crazy and the problem of course is that what you have in a trial situation is you have dueling experts who are getting paid fairly large amounts of money to say whatever they're hiring attorney wants them to say, trying to convince 12 lay people 
that they're right or wrong. So what happens is is the dueling experts if will, will often cancel each other out. The jury will take a look at the kid sitting in a wheelchair drooling, and they'll say, somebody has to pay for that. And so you're screwed. So the whole idea that the whole healthcare system has to change as far as when there's no malice involved in a negligence case, then negligence needs to be something where there's got to be like a, a government pool of insurance or something like that. Otherwise, these sorts of, of options for women, like getting delivered at your local hospital, are going to disappear. And it's, and it's perfectly understandable. It's a shame. It's a crying shame. It's tragic. This is, this is what America is made up of, of these small communities where you can have these services done and more and more people are getting... Uh, I even know here in Ojai, California, 15 years in Ojai, California, their, their little hospital there did deliveries. They were bought out by a big hospital in Ventura, which is 11 miles away, and then the Ventura Hospital closed the delivery unit so that all the babies would have to go down to Ventura. And so, 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 so the, the people, the little people that live in Ojai, California, now if they want to have a baby, they either have to have it at home. If they want to have the baby uh, via natural childbirth. If they, if they if want they, to have a baby wanted, in an environment where they're not being pushed or shoved to do anything. Or if they want to have a baby, even if they want to have a baby in the hospital now, they have to, they have to, they have to drive down the mountain. In order to do it, as opposed to doing it in their community. Let me ask you a question. Because, no, because, Brian, yeah. mainstream medicine, the American population have been brainwashed to believe that, that pregnant, pregnancy is a, a disease. Question. And so they want to treat it as a disease as opposed to something that's normal. Maybe the most important question I've asked you tonight or during this podcast. Okay. Uh, podcast number, what, 73? Three. Three. Yeah, right. Here's a question. Yeah. Is this information that you articulate so eloquently, is it not appreciated fully or is it not appreciated to the extent it should be to make a difference by the medical community or is it not appreciated fully to the extent it needs to be to make a difference by the community of patients? Well, I think the patients take their lead from the medical community, and they think the medical community, it, it, again... But what's that answer? Who knows more? I mean, is the medical community hip to information they're not sharing with, their, with, with those they care for, uh, or, or are those they care for hip to this information, and the medical community, for some other reason, is still behind the eight ball and unaware of well, most, all of these great facts. Most people, Brian, are not aware. Uh, they, they're still, they still live in fairly much ignorance as far as uh, the medical stuff, and trust, they have to trust their physician. We wouldn't have a 32% cesarean section rate if the consumer was driving the, the bus. All right, the consumer is the passenger on the bus. The medical community is still driving the bus. And the same thing goes on here. I talk about this with breach delivery all the time. You know, in breach delivery, uh, there's plenty of evidence that supports breach delivery as a reasonable option if you pick your patients properly at sure, term. Sure, My colleagues, most of them choose to ignore it. And not only choose to ignore it, but they choose to not even inform their patient that it's an option that they can't offer. So what happens is it boils down sometimes to ethics. Um, wh where to place the blame? I always place the blame on the leadership. I place the blame on ACOG. I place the blame on, on the academicians who are not guiding our profession in the best interest of the women that we're supposed to be serving. Do you place the blame on hospital administrators? 
Well, here's the thing about hospital administrators. Their responsibility isn't to the patient. It's to the people who work for them. And it's to their shareholders and, and, uh, and, and their and their corporation. What about the old days when churches ran hospitals and uh, and they were technically? I think you. Uh, I think it was a better. I think we were better as a consumer. We were better off when even doctors ran hospitals. Used to be there used to be places called doctors' hospitals. Yeah, because the nun didn't try to get rich. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't about that. It was about serving the community. But then we when then we then the lawyers began to sue things and it began to become. Uh, a fear of well, if we do this and we lose, we could lose everything. Our fiduciary responsibility, our ethical responsibility, is not to the pregnant woman. It's to the shareholder. It's to the CEO or the board of directors or whatever else. Our and that's, responsibility. And that's just crazy. Well, it, to, to, it, to my ears, it's yeah, it is it is crazy. But the, the you know that's their ethical duty. Our ethical duty as physicians is to our supposed to be. To, uh, to the people we serve. Right. But that's not the ethical duty. You asked about the CEO of the hospital. I mean, I'm saying it, it, does, it sounds immoral, but it's not unethical for them to say, we have to put the hospital before we put you. This happens all the time. Where are I, the I, shareholders I, mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath? They're not. Oh. Yes. Not, that, the the not lawyers that aren't mentioned in there? Randy Wang, The producer. insurance providers, they're not mentioned either? No, no. Good, good question from Randy Wang, the producer. I have a question for you. Uh, as we... Uh, I agree. I, you know, listen, I, I didn't create the system. And that's why, and that's why like I said, the system... that's why you fight You're it. not going to fix this, this system. This system is broken beyond repair. And the only way to fix this system is to give it, a, give it some competition where they say hey, we better shape up or we're going to lose all our business. And that's by having an alternative system. We, again, we need a benefactor. We need a Bill Gates, a Mark Zuckerberg, uh, somebody of great wealth and, magnani- and magnanimity. Is that a word? Yeah. Okay. To, um, to possibly take up a cause like this and say, okay, I'm going to donate money. And we're going to create an alternative birthing environment here in Los Angeles, mm. okay, where people can... You know, choose to come in, and and I, again, the problem is, is that the lawyers will start to get in the way. There'll be so many consent forms and so many documents and legal issues that it almost becomes impossible. You I know, ask that's why you. I, 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 go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Finish. Please. Well, I was going to say that's why in, in my fantasy dreams, I have, I, I I buy a used aircraft carrier. Right. I anchor it twelve miles offshore. Okay, and we have the uh, country of Brian birthing facility. And people can come there. We're not bound by the laws of the United States, and the trial lawyers can't get you. With a minute or two I don't to go. That's, I don't know if that's even possible, but <laughs> but then, of course, they wouldn't be born American citizens. They'd have to sneak into the country. I have some funky dreams, too, I should share with you some night, uh, someday. We don't want to scare people. Yeah, right? no, uh, but they're peaceful. Some of them are kind of out there, too. With a minute or two to go, I ask you, as I read here, uh, read along with you of all these lawsuits or threats of lawsuits, in your experience, Dr. Stu, being in the industry, how many, uh, g- give me a percentage, out of 100, give me a number out of 100, out of 100, how many of these lawsuits or threatened lawsuits or actually, uh, uh, you know, actually uh, filed lawsuits end in settlements and never make it to a jury? I would say about 95% will end up in settlement. And that's not because anybody did anything. Sometimes it's because somebody did something wrong and you just settle for policy limits, and that's understandable. But a lot of times, even when you did nothing wrong, as you know, Brian, we've talked about this. Everybody knows about this. It's cheaper to settle than it is to fight. 
and it's, it's less stressful to settle than it is to fight. So a lot of times a doctor will just say, you know what? I, I don't want to go to court for, I don't want to be in court for two weeks. I don't want this to drag on for two years. Just settle the case. Is that the, MO of 95% being settled, good or bad, for doctors like yourself? It's bad. It's, it's essentially just encourages more lawsuits because there's no downside for in, in our system of, of uh, each side pays for its own legal fees. Is it your position that it, presents, that it prevents the truth from getting out? Well, what is truth? What, what really is the truth? No, the truth no. is, yeah, you got an injured baby, but the truth is, is that is that uh, that may not have been negligence because nature, you know, not everything works out perfectly. Despite the best possible uh, care that a mother takes of herself and the best possible care she receives in uh, in her pre pregnancy and in her labor. What a compelling way to wrap up uh, Dr. Stu's podcast number 73. Oh, there's so many things unanswered here. Wow, so many things unanswered, but they will be answered in the future. This is great. We are back after a little hiatus. Go to I the website. I want, I want to, on the next podcast, I want to know what some of those dreams were, Brian. Yeah, uh, I'll, I have a list. Okay. DrStu'sPodcast.com is the website where you hear the podcast. If you don't want to miss a website go to itunes and register for dr stew's podcast you'll get an alert and you'll never miss another podcast as long as you live go to the facebook page and like dr stew's facebook page follow him on twitter uh do that and send emails ask dr stew at gmail.com he reads them all and responds to 95 percent of them the best defense is to continue to listen to our podcast because an informed patient makes it more difficult for people who don't have your best interest at heart to do what they do so being be, get yourself well informed well inform your friends uh, share the word that's dr stuart fishbein our producer is randy wang i'm brian whitman thanks for joining us for dr Stu. i'm the aforementioned brian whitman we'll see you next time thanks for joining us